This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Talib Vizram, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. On today's episode, we hear from speakers and panelists about the topic on everyone's mind, the coronavirus pandemic. From large pharma to fashion to scientific exploration, company leaders have all had to tackle a massive economic recession. In order to adapt, they have learned valuable lessons about preparedness, short-term thinking, and the benefits of remote work. We start with Novartis CEO Vast Narasimhan, who talks about the past and future of pandemics with Fast Company Editor-in-Chief Stephanie Mehta. About a year ago, Vass told David Gellis in a New York Times interview he was deeply concerned about the world's ability to respond to a pandemic. He said he didn't think the world was prepared for one. Stephanie asked him to elaborate on that and assess how we're doing now. If I had only known that quote would, <laughs> would be so relevant uh, just a year later. You know, when, when I think about my own experience, I started working on outbreaks and pandemics as a public health physician as far back as, as 1999, looking at the international health regulations. I later had the opportunity to work on, uh, in 2007, after the bird flu outbreaks in China, and then the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. And what I've seen consistently is the world really falls short on three dimensions. One is the ability to have constant surveillance for when these viruses move from animal species into into humans. The second is having a free flow of information that's not impeded by governments to really ensure that everyone understands when these outbreaks happen at the earliest possible stage. We have something called the international health regulations that try to make that possible. But often, for a variety of reasons, it doesn't always happen. And then the third, perhaps what we see now most acutely, is the ability to have what's called warm preparedness within the system. So do we have readiness from a manufacturing standpoint for all of the medical vaccines, therapeutics, and other goods that we need? Are public health systems ready for masks, gloves, syringes, all of these different things uh, that that we know now you need to have ready for for a pandemic? And what I've consistently seen in the history and then in my own experience post-H1N1, we're really good in the first few years after a pandemic, and then we tend to lose interest, lose investment. And so when David Gellis asked me that question, I had a sense that in the United States, but also around the world, that our preparedness had fallen down uh, quite, quite significantly. Stephanie wants to know why the free flow of information is so crucial in not only tracking viruses, but also in helping people prepare for them. So when you, when you think back in history, again, we have faced as a species many pandemics. I mean, in, in recent history, in the past four or 500 years, the estimates are about 15 pandemics plus in that range. And what happened in, in after the creation of the World Health Organization is the establishment of something called the International Health Regulations. It started out around cholera, plague, and yellow fever, three diseases that at the time were quite important, but then got expanded more broadly that if a country, a member country of the World Health Organization, sees a significant increase in a given disease, they're supposed to report it so that the other member countries are able then, then to, to respond. 
I think what we've seen, and, and it's really across countries and, and around the world, that this becomes challenging because of the consequences from a political standpoint, a trade standpoint, et cetera. But it's so important because the only way you can contain a respiratory virus like this is very early before it becomes broadly disseminated in a population. Now, I think the one positive that did come in this particular instance is the fact the Chinese government was able to make the sequence of this virus available very early, as, as in historically early, which then enabled us to develop RNA vaccines relatively quickly. Stephanie asks Vas what people outside of the medical community can do to help address the spread of the virus and how he's feeling about finding a path forward. So, you know, I'm an optimist and, I, and I, I, what I see uh, in our global response is some remarkable things. We had an exponential growth of a virus and what we saw in the spring was an exponential response. Governments around the world taking lockdowns, which have never been done in, in modern history. We have the explosion of scientific innovation and discovering and repurposing drugs, finding vaccines, doing clinical trials. And the way I see this unfolding is the power of actually accumulated innovation over time. I think what we're going to find is doctors are getting better at managing this in the hospital. We're learning more about how to manage this in the ICU. We're seeing more and more of the repurposed drugs, drugs we already have, which we're trying to apply to COVID, starting to have an impact. And hopefully we have some vaccines uh, and we'll have to see how effective and safe those vaccines are, how much supply we have, but that will be another incremental step then hopefully we find a few therapeutics that can actually treat people even better who are in the ICU. And what I think we're gonna find over time is our ability to, to live with this virus as we live with other coronaviruses. And this becomes part of the normal way that our society operates. Hopefully by then we won't see any, this, the, the very large numbers of deaths, of course, that we're seeing now. That's how I see this realistically unfolding, not a silver bullet. I mean, I think our hopes that there will be one thing that will magically make life return back to the way it used to be is probably unlikely. But the accumulation of all of the innovation that's being pursued right now will make, I think, life come back to much more livable and, and much, much more similar to what we've seen in the past. As we've seen over the past several months, the pandemic has sent shockwaves throughout the business community. Many companies scrambled to address the fallout. CEO of Tommy Hilfiger Global, Martijn Hagman, tells Fast Company senior writer Liz Segrin how COVID-19 affected his company's brand, customers, and its overall business. Yeah, massive changes, obviously. So when, when the crisis hit, we, we had to go to crisis mode, very short-term thinking, uh, focus on cash, focus on inventory, focus on associate health and well-being. Uh, luckily, we had that pretty quickly under control and we could shift to what we call the midterm recovery and, and, and start to look a little bit longer term, uh, identify the priorities to, to get out of this crisis and to, to build back the business to, to yeah, more normal levels. Um, and in that same period, uh, realizing that areas of innovation and sustainability uh, became even more important than before going into this crisis. So uh, contrary to what many people might think, we, we did not slow down our investments in those areas. Actually, we started to accelerate. And what we talk about today, about the launch of our new sustainability strategy, I think that's a testimony to it. But also looking at the product that we bring on the market, we, a couple of months ago, we launched 
the Spring 21 collection, or we sold in, I have to say, the Spring 21 collection. And two weeks from now, we will do the same with the Summer Prefold 21 collections. And I'm just so proud to see that, that we didn't slow down on any of our sustainability efforts. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, the, the percentage of sustainable styles only increased. And, and with more sustainable styles, I mean, in terms of uh, using organic cotton, using recycled cotton, or or low impact uh, finishing techniques. And yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to see um, how we have, have kept those sustainability standards high and, and are actually continuing to progressing. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Fast Company senior writer Nicole Laporte speaks with National Geographic Society CEO Jill Tiefenthaler, board chair Jean Case, and Corey Jaskolski, a National Geographic fellow and engineer who was recently named their Explorer of the Year. Here, Jill asks how National Geographic responded to such a global crisis like the pandemic by addressing problems early on. An organization that's committed to exploration, clearly the pandemic had a big impact on our folks, right? Being able to be out there. So we did pivot pretty quickly. You know, I talked a little bit about the education work, which was an amazing um, pivot to really, um, we had a new strategy in place to support teachers, but we quickly moved to really doing all we could to support those who were doing hybrid and um, virtual learning. And again, as I said, getting those explorers in the classroom that couldn't be out there. Um, in addition, we had this incredible emergency fund for journalists around COVID-19. We also knew that um, you know, our National Geographic partners and others were having a hard time getting a lot of, because people couldn't travel, getting stories from the ground. Um, so we put out an emergency fund for journalists and funded more than 150 projects in more than 50 countries around the world for um, journalists to tell the stories in their local communities and share those both, both with their local um, um, publications as well as National Geographic. And that really helped us to cover the event globally and to support those journalists at the same time. Jean Case also weighs in on what she considers a benefit to being such a large organization. Yeah, and I would say, uh, you know, Nicole, because everyone around National Geographic is so mission focused, that this whole idea that, you know, we're working from home or we're working from a remote location, you know, to a large degree, we were already a network of people who are used to being in different places as we fulfill our mission. But even for those that were at headquarters every day, you know, we just joke and comment on this if she wants, but we just haven't seen any sort of lack of enthusiasm as we're coming into seven months and they're still working. Do they have Zoom fatigue and some of those things? Absolutely. But I think the benefit of being a mission-driven organization means that no matter where anyone is or how they're doing their work, we share that. And I feel like that's been a real benefit and almost an advantage to us through this period of time when we can't be physically together. Since traveling for field work is an inherent part of Corey's profession, he explains how he's managed to continue despite the pandemic. It's harder to do our work on Zoom as an explorer, but um, right when this <laughs> pandemic started, I actually spun up a, an AI company called Synthetic. And a lot of our exploration work has been AI focused anyways. So what we've kind of pivoted to a bit during the pandemic here 
is um, doing AI work on existing data that we have. So for example, looking at Everest to understand how far the foliage is growing up the side of it, that could have been, and would have been much more fun to be another trip back to Everest, but instead we're taking the data that we already captured it and running it through our synthetic AI and doing that across some of these other projects as well. So it's changed the way we work. Um, and I would say it's you know, certainly uh, taken some of, the, some of the field out of it uh, for now, which we're all looking forward to getting back to. But um, we've still been able to keep going strong, and I think have made some discoveries and some uh, uh, some interesting illuminations that we might not have had we had we been in the field as normal. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more highlights from the festival. But if you want to tune in to the full schedule of events, check out events.fastcompany.com and click on Buy Tickets. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizram.